the last paragraph of the last speech of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the day before he was assassinated reads like this. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He didn't know. No one could have known that he would be killed one day later. And that these words, intended as a conclusion to a speech, would take on the gravity of the conclusion to his life and mission in the cause of civil rights for African Americans. Last words matter. As imprint winds down, toward the close of our season of life and mission together, what we say to each other in these final moments matters. And so to help us end well and to consider, help us consider important, meaningful, final words, we're going to look together uh, at the endings of several New Testament letters. We started doing this last week with uh, Second Peter. And today we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. So in your copy of the Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And while you're turning to 1 Thessalonians, let me give you a little bit of background on uh, the church at Thessalonica. Paul planted the church in Thessalonica along with his companions Silas and Timothy uh, during his second missionary journey, which you can read about uh, in the early part of, chapter, of Acts chapter 17. Uh, but they were forced to leave the city prematurely because of strong opposition by the local Jewish leadership. They didn't want Paul and his companions preaching uh, the gospel of Jesus, and so they sort of forced them out. And so shortly thereafter, uh, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to encourage this new church and to sort of report back to him uh, concerning their welfare. So after Timothy returned to Paul in Corinth, where they had now made it to and where they would spend about 18 months doing ministry, uh, Paul, along with Timothy and Silas, penned this letter around 50 AD uh, to the church in Thessalonica with encouragement and further instruction in the faith. Now, it seems that the church was doing reasonably well, considering it had only recently been founded and the, the sort of process of establishing them uh, had, had been cut so short. Uh, but they were in need of further teaching on some basic tenets of the Christian faith. And so the book's most substantial theological contribution, if you will, concerns the return of the Lord Jesus and the Christian's hope of resurrection at his coming. And then he comes to these concluding exhortations in chapter 5, verse 12. So I'm going to read for you uh, chapter 5, verse 12 through the end of, uh, of the chapter. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. 
Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Join me in a short prayer for illumination that comes from the Book of Common Prayer. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the main idea from this passage, as I see it, really it's an exhortation and an encouragement. An exhortation and an encouragement. The exhortation is this. Pursue sanctification in the church. And then the encouragement is this. God will sanctify you by his grace. So we'll take those one at a time. Pursue sanctification in the church. This is what I'm, the words that I would use to sum up verses 12 through 22. Now, Paul doesn't use the word sanctification in those verses. I'm supplying it, if you will, from verse 23, where he says, may God himself sanctify you completely. Because it seems to be the thematic glue that sort of holds uh, all of these verses together. In fact, verses 12 through 22 are kind of a, they read like just a barrage of instructions of, of, of short, pithy exhortations about how to live, about the kind of life to, to pursue. And I think that all of those instructions, all of those imperative verbs, do this, do this, all of those things are held together by the idea of sanctification. That is the, the, our gradual growth into Christ-likeness, a holiness. That's the big Bible word for the process by which we come to look more like Jesus in the course of our lives. So we're to pursue sanctification. That is, we're to give ourselves to these instructions, these exhortations, and we're to do so in the church. I can't help but notice that, that all or at least most of these commands concerning Christian living are community-based commands. They're how we relate to one another within the context of a local church, how we relate to leaders, how we relate to uh, sort of difficult people, if you will, within the church, how we regard the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our context. The holiness to which God calls us in this passage is a church-shaped holiness. And so pursue sanctification in the church is kind of a summary of these 11 
verses. Well, how should you do that? How are we to pursue sanctification in the church? Uh, I, I see sort of four uh, categories of, of instruction here. The first one is this. Follow your leaders. Follow your leaders. You see that in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. The pattern throughout the New Testament is the, uh, the appointing of elders, and it seems to be a plurality of elders in each local church. Appoint elders in each church. That was what uh, the apostles were doing as they planted churches in Acts. Uh, we see Paul give that instruction explicitly to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. As I instructed you to appoint elders in every town, that seems to be in every town's church, there should be a plurality of elders leading the way. Now, that's one of those things that at, at imprint over the years, we've, we've aspired to that, we've desired that, we've prayed for that. Uh, but in the Lord's mysterious providence, he hasn't granted us that. So I've served you as the only elder, the only pastor these years. Uh, but it seems to be that the, the ideal and the biblical norm is for a local church to have a group of godly men who are serving in the role of pastor or elder. And those words are interchangeable. Now, Paul doesn't use the word pastor or the word elder in these verses in 1 Thessalonians 5, but it seems clear based on how he describes the work that they do that this is who he has in mind. So let's look at those things that he says that they do. He says he, he urges his readers to respect those who labor among you. And this has to do with the diligent work of pastoral responsibility and care, right? This is, the, this is the work of knowing people. This is the work of knowing the word of God. This is the work of, of bringing the gospel to bear on the lives of the, the sheep within that flock, that sheepfold, if you will. Those who labor among you, and he says, are over you, in the Lord. And the word he uses there is the same word that's used throughout the New Testament in terms of sort of management. Like when Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, describing the, the qualifications of elders, he says that, that the men who are to be elders are those who are able to manage their household well. And it's the very same word that, that, tra that is translated as those who are over you in the Lord. So this has to do with, with managing. This has to do with the oversight of a group of people and their lives together. So these leaders that he's calling them to respect are those who are managing the affairs of the church. Those who labor among you, those who are over you in the Lord, meaning that the Lord has placed them there in that position. The Lord has granted the, the leadership authority to these pastors uh, to lead in, their, in the church. And finally, those who admonish you. And I think this has to do broadly with teaching and instruction, both formally and informally. The formal instruction and teaching of God's word and the, in the preaching of, of the word in the main gatherings of the church um, and informally from house to house, from relationship to relationship as the, the leaders, the pastors in the church are bringing the, the Bible, bringing God's word and the gospel to bear on the lives and situations of the uh, members of that church. And so they, these are the leaders who are diligently laboring to manage and to teach the church, right? So that's, so he says, I urge you to respect those who are diligently laboring to oversee, to manage the life of the church and to instruct, to admonish the church 
from the word of God. So I think clearly he has in mind here pastors and, and elders. Respect them and esteem them very highly, he says, because of their work. I left out an important phrase. Respect them and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So the first sort of aspect of life in the church and what it means to be sanctified, that is to become more like Jesus in the church, is to respect and submit to the leadership of the pastors that God has given to that church. To respect them and to esteem them highly in love because of their work. In other words, aware of the work that they are doing on your behalf, you ought to sort of partner with them in that work by following their leadership. That's stated uh, really kind of almost bluntly, boldly in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for... So why should you obey them and submit to them? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. In other words, these leaders who have been given authority in the church by the king of the church, Jesus, to lead the affairs of the church, to teach and instruct God's people in the church, they will stand before God one day. They will stand before the judge, the chief shepherd of the church, Jesus Christ, and give an account for how they have stewarded that responsibility. That is a holy and heavy weight on the shoulders of pastors. They will stand before God and give an account for how they have cared for, how they have taught, how they have loved the sheep in their fold. And because of that, you ought to obey them and submit to them because they're watching over your soul with seriousness, right? With the, as a serious stewardship and responsibility because they hold this responsibility and they know that they will stand before God and give account for this. You ought to respect and follow their leadership. And then he says in the very next phrase of verse 17, let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, let your pastors carry out the work of ministry, of overseeing the affairs of the church, of teaching you and admonishing you and instructing you in God's word. Let that be a joy to them by the way you respond to their leadership. Maybe you've known people who don't tend to respond to the leadership in the church that way. There's, a, there's an instinct to, to bristle at authority. There's an instinct to push back on any, uh, on any kind of leadership or, or vision that, that's put before the church. There's this sometimes in people just a, a, a sort of a, a, a stiff arm. Like, no, I don't want to go that direction. I need to question this plan. I need to challenge this authority. And so the work of the pastor in that context becomes labor. It becomes laborious. It becomes burdensome, right? It becomes with groaning, as Hebrews 13, 17 says. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Like, oh gosh, here we go again, right? So there's a sense in which pastors may have situations and relationships with people where the work that they're doing is particularly hard because of the, the way that, that people posture themselves toward their pastors. And so the wisdom of Hebrews 13, 17 seems very much in line with what Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. Respect those who labor among you. Esteem them very highly in love 
because of the work that they are doing. They are working hard and they are doing that for your benefit. So it is good for you as well as for them and for the whole church to follow their leadership, to submit to their leadership. Wherever you land in the coming days, there will be pastors who are over you in the Lord. It's good for you to take this exhortation in, uh, along with you into whatever new family of God you land in. Make it a point, make a commitment to let your life in the church, your response to the leadership of those pastors be a joy to them so that they don't pastor you with groaning, but with joy. You've done that well at Imprint. Let me just make that clear. My work of leading and shepherding and instructing you in God's word has been with joy and not with groaning. So praise God for that. And then it says, be at peace among yourselves. And that could be a standalone instruction, but I think it comes immediately on the heels of this instruction about submitting to, to, to the leaders, the pastors in the church. I think the peace that he envisions among the people of God perhaps stems from the way that he's calling the people to respond to pastoral leadership. So as you follow leadership, as you respect those who are over you in the Lord, as you gladly receive the instruction of God's word that comes from them, you are contributing to, to peace in the church, right? The absence of, of this embattlement and entrenchment and conflict that can come about. You know, we are ready all the time with examples of of churches who have been disrupted or devastated by irresponsible and abusive uh, leadership, right? That, that is a sort of, that's a very common news story in our day and age. It doesn't, there's, not, there's not a lot of time that goes by between sort of big announcements of some pastor, some mega church, some situation where, oh, wow, we've got these new discoveries of terrible things that have been going on in this church among these leaders. That We're, we're used to that. And our culture sort of grabs onto those and puts those forward because they want anything they can do to discredit Christ and his gospel and his church. They, would, uh, they are looking for those opportunities. But consider what divisions and turmoil can occur within a church when its godly, faithful leaders are belittled, or ignored, mistrusted. The last two years of life in pandemic and among political unrest and all these various things. I know personally of many pastors whose experience of leading their congregations through this season has been very embattled. There's been a lot of division. There's been people leaving their local fellowships over mask mandates and because they wouldn't make this statement or they did make this statement or whatever about whatever's going on. This, there is division and disruption that Satan rejoices over when the sheep will not follow the leadership of their shepherd. Now, I'm not making a blanket sort of endorsement of any and all pastoral leaders. Obviously, there are bad examples. There are people who shouldn't be pastors, who are pastors. Okay, so I'm not giving some blanket approval to everything that any pastor does. But the exhortation from God's word in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13 is respect your leaders, follow and submit to their leadership, and let their work be done with joy and not with groaning. And that is for the peace of the church. So how do we pursue sanctification in the church? First of all, follow your leaders. Secondly, love difficult people. Love difficult people. 
Look at verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So we get three sort of categories of people who can be challenging in the life of a church. And if we're honest, probably at one point or another, we all are difficult at some point in one or another of these ways. We're not always strong and diligent, at, right? So sometimes we are the people that are being described in these verses. So wisely, Paul sort of breaks it down. There are people who struggle and suffer and sin in different ways within the life of the church. And those leaders, those pastors, and indeed all the members of the church are called to live with and interact with those people in certain kinds of ways. And indeed, in love. Look one at a time. He says, first, admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. This would simply be those who refuse to work. You could even say those who maybe don't take their own spiritual life very seriously. They're warming a, a, a pew somewhere, but they're not really contributing to the life of the church. They're not really responsibly taking uh, uh, leadership cues from, uh, from those who are over them in the Lord. But even specifically, I think the, a situation he's addressing in Thessalonica is people who are not providing for their family, right? So there's people who should be working and earning a living who have decided for one reason or another that they'd rather not. And so they aren't. He returns to this exhortation in 2 Thessalonians and has some even stronger words to say about it. So this is, apparently is a, is a challenge among this particular congregation. And some have speculated that because of the, the, um, the prevalence of, of teaching on the second coming of Christ in these letters, that perhaps some are going, well, Jesus is going to come back any day, so why do I need to go to work? Right? I should just sit on a hill and watch the skies, and I don't, I don't need to work. And that could be the case. It's a bit speculative, but it, it, that could be a reason. But the point is, God has given this mandate to work, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, to work, to tend the garden, to tend the ground, right? He's given man work to do. And when people refuse to do that work, they need to be admonished, which is a, a warning. It's, it's gentle reproof. Paul doesn't say, come flying at them with all the force of a thousand sons and make sure that you know, they know how terrible they are. He says, admonish them, warn them. Hey, this is not right, right? God calls you to more than this. Christians should have that ministry to one another. Admonish the idol. Second, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. The commentator described what, what is meant by this word faint-hearted as someone of lowly spirit who is discouraged or grieved. And again, which of us isn't? at some point in our journey, discouraged or grieved. Paul doesn't say, go correct them. He doesn't say, wisely, he doesn't say, admonish the faint-hearted. Like, will you get over it? Will you get up off the mat and keep going? He doesn't say, go be a coach to those who are faint-hearted. He says, encourage them. It implies consolation. Come alongside them. Come alongside a struggling sister or brother in gentleness and compassion. Encourage the faint-hearted. Third, help the weak. That's a broad word. 
The New Testament addresses a variety of weaknesses. Paul speaks elsewhere of those with a weak conscience. There, people can be weak because of physical illness or ailments. People can be weak because of their, social, uh, their socially disadvantaged position. So in a context like uh, the one Paul is writing into, certainly women, children, etc. would have fallen into this category of those who are socially disadvantaged and thereby weak. That's part of, I think, what, what Peter means in 1 Peter 3, where he speaks of the wife as the weaker vessel. In some ways, I think he's referring to that social disadvantage that women have. So there's, there's a variety of weaknesses right, that people can uh, be, be victim to at any point. And I think probably he's talking about all of it, right? In all of the varied ways that Christians can be plagued with physical and spiritual weakness, what, do you, what should you do? Help them. Come alongside them. Come to their aid. Help them carry their burden. Provide practical help in their various needs. So every kind of sufferer and every kind of sinner doesn't need the exact same treatment. There's wisdom to be applied. There's compassion and love with which we ought to view one another in the church. What are your needs? What is your particular struggle? Are you idle? Are you faint-hearted? Are you weak? My response to you will be different based on what your needs are. And in every case, be patient with them all. Brothers and sisters, be patient with one another. Be patient with one another in the body of Christ. There are always some in any church, there are those who want to move faster. There are those who will always be lagging behind and going, we're going too fast, slow down. We need to be patient with each other. Christians in every congregation need to give each other space. I think patience with one another means we need to be willing to bear with each other in our various differences, in terms of personalities, in terms of even opinions and beliefs on kind of secondary and tertiary matters, either of doctrine or politics or whatever it is. So often Christians divide with one another over stuff that Christians have no business dividing over. Be patient with one another. We should have a, a reflex of forgiveness. When I'm sinned against, if we're really living in light of the gospel, we'll be quick with forgiveness, ready to extend mercy. A willingness to endure annoyance or disappointment from people without writing them off. You can't be a part of my life anymore because you've annoyed me one too many times. You've disappointed me one too many times. We need to be patient. We need to give people time, give the Holy Spirit time to work in them, to grow them up. Perhaps flying in the face of the culturally popular notion of like cutting toxic people out. And I'm not giving like, again, I'm not excusing real quote unquote toxicity. There obviously are harmful, abusive behaviors in people and we ought to be guarding ourselves and boundaries are good in those kinds of situations. But we're much too quick to write people off and cut people out. You offended me, you hurt my feelings, we're done. Not, it cannot be that way in the church. Brothers and sisters, we must be patient with each other. The gospel compels us to extend patient grace and long-suffering toward those in our church family who are sometimes difficult to love. Just like God has done and continues to do for us. Are you ever a difficult person to love, do you think? Let's extend each other grace and patience. So follow your leaders 
Love difficult people. Number three, seek goodness and gratitude. Now, this becomes a little bit hard to start categorizing things because he's just like one after the other, right? So this is my best shot at trying to lump a few of these together. Verses 15 through 18, seek goodness and gratitude. Look at this, uh, this list of instructions beginning in verse 15. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't repay, oh, I missed the first one. He said, don't repay evil with evil, but do good to one another and to everyone, right? So it begins with when you are sinned against, don't sin back, right? We don't fight fire with fire is not, a, is not a Christian ethic. That's not how we live within the church. We don't repay evil with evil, but we could. How hard is that to do in our flesh? When someone pays us evil, we shouldn't seek retaliation. We should seek blessing. How do we do good to one another even when we are not treated well? Rejoice always. Again, not one of our favorite instructions. It's hard to rejoice always. Sometimes life is just hard and it's tough to rejoice. And in a closely related way, he says, give thanks in all circumstances. Really? In all circumstances? Maybe I could get behind give thanks in most circumstances, but there's some things that I just can't possibly give. Listen, God is your father. God is your shepherd, even in the hardest, darkest, deepest valleys that you travel through. Give thanks that he is with you. Give thanks that he has given you his spirit to strengthen you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Maybe that's one of those ways that we can always rejoice and always give thanks is because we're just always praying. Lord, I can't do this on my own. Please help me. There's a singer uh, named Jason Gray who has a song called, I think it's called Help Me and Thank You. And it's sort of like the story of it and the, the lyrics of it are sort of like, in every situation, I found that the two best things to pray are Lord, help me and Lord, thank you. No matter what the situation is, I need your help in this and thank you, God. Thank you for it. Thank you for what you're working, uh, what you're doing in me through this situation. Help me and thank you. Those are two really good prayers and you can pray those quickly. You can pray them often. Pray without ceasing. I don't think it literally means we need to go like close ourselves in a, in a prayer closet and never leave it because then how could we go work, right? There's no way to do all these things if we're always like privately praying. This is an attitude of prayer. It's a continual posture of recognizing my need for God and confident of his presence with me. So when I speak to him, I know he hears me. So we should always have this open line of, of prayer communication with the Lord to help us give thanks in all circumstances and rejoice at all times. Seek goodness and gratitude. And then the final one, uh, under what pursuing sanctification of the church looks like is to walk by the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit. Now, I'm borrowing that language from Galatians chapter 5, where Paul says to walk by the Spirit and you won't fulfill or gratify the desires of the flesh. But it's very much uh, summarizing what goes on in verses 19 through 21. Do not quench the Spirit, he says. You can't quench the Spirit in the sense of diminishing his power or personhood in some way. But in terms of think about uh, if a fire is burning and you throw water on it, it puts the fire out. So if the Holy Spirit is working in some way, if the Holy Spirit is, is convicting you in some way, if the Holy Spirit is teaching in some way, 
We can quench the Spirit by how we respond to what He's doing. By, perhaps, stiff-arming those who are leading us and admonishing us in the Lord. Or some other disobedience to these various instructions that He's given us. So I think that do not quench the Spirit is connected both to what came before it and what comes after it. So verses 16 to 18, perhaps we quench the Spirit, so to speak, by failing to live out these various instructions of, of bearing patiently with one another and, uh, and, and by ceasing to give thanks to God and ceasing to, to pray, right? Because it's his will that we give thanks in all circumstances. So if we aren't giving thanks in all circumstances, we're disobeying his will and in a sense quenching the spirit. So I think some of this looks back at these things he's told us to do. Here's how you ought to live in the church. And if you don't do this in a way, you're quenching the spirit. You're saying no thanks, to what the Spirit is trying to do in you. But I also think it's connected to what comes after it, specifically the prophecies of verse 12. It says, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. I think the idea here is that what comes to us as the Word of God should be welcomed. And we should test what we hear. Don't just take everything at face value. If somebody says, thus saith the Lord, that doesn't necessarily make it so. Plenty of people have said, God told me to fill in the blank. And what came after it, you can be like, I'm pretty sure God didn't tell you to do that. Because actually there's a verse of the Bible that says you shouldn't do that. And God's not going to disagree with himself and what he tells you to do, right? So we should test what we hear. When someone claims to speak for God or claims that what he or she says is, uh, is the word of God, we should compare that to what's revealed in God's word. Is this true? Is this right? Test prophecies, right? Test everything that you hear and embrace what is good. I think that's directly related to that. I think this means when God's word is spoken and when you can deem that it is indeed consistent with the truth that God has revealed to us in his word, then embrace it. It's good. It's right. You should live by it. So we walk by the spirit instead of by our flesh. And that's how sanctification, that, that process of growing into the likeness of Christ comes about. And in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. I think this is just sort of a catch-all uh, umbrella command defining sanctification, uh, the sanctification toward which he's calling us in these verses, right? Abstain from every form of evil. Resist sin and temptation. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, we're told elsewhere. Embrace what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So, verses 12 through 22, again, they have the sense of just this long, this, this fast machine gun kind of list of all the things that we should be doing. And it can be a little overwhelming. How can I possibly do all of that? But the context or the, the shape of that is pursuing sanctification in the church, participating actively in the life of a local fellowship of believers where you can follow the leaders that God has put over you and where you can love difficult people around you and you can seek goodness and gratitude and you can aim to walk by the Spirit. These are things that he calls us to in the context of the local church. Listen, there's no Lone Ranger spirituality in following Jesus. The faithful Christian life is church life. And friends, you've done this well at Imprint. You've spent the last several years growing into this. We all have together. Don't stop now. 
Imprint Community Church is coming to an end, but you are still followers of Jesus, which means you are still called to faithful Christian living, which means you are still called to a church-shaped life. So whichever local fellowship in which you plant yourself next, take this commitment, this conviction with you into it. I will pursue sanctification in the church. You can think of all kinds of reasons not to. It's more comfortable. It's less costly to avoid it. But where Christ dwells is among his people. If you will have Christ, you must have his body, his church. Pursue sanctification in the church. That's the exhortation. Really, the umbrella over a whole series of exhortations. And then he concludes with an encouragement. And the encouragement is this. God will sanctify you by his grace. Which is really good news because that list of commands feels pretty daunting. I'm not sure I can be patient with everybody. I'm not sure I'm always going to succeed at helping the weak instead of criticizing them. I'm not sure I'm always going to be inclined to follow the leadership of those that God has put in authority over me. I want, might want to push back. I might disagree with what they're trying to do. This all feels pretty scary. Abstain from every form of evil. How can I possibly do that? And then the good news that answers that is that everything God demands of us, he supplies for us by his grace. Everything he demands of us, he supplies for us by his grace. Look at these verses again, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. There won't be anything lacking. There's not going to be corners of life that God doesn't get to. He will sanctify you completely so that with the result that your whole spirit and soul and body may be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that spirit and soul and body thing, some press uh, too hard on this and come out with a sort of uh, what's called a tripartite division of a human being. In other words, a person is a spirit and a soul and a body. And so then we're kind of trying to parse what's the difference between spirit and soul. And you end up with some kind of odd anthropology. The, the, the consistent teaching of the Bible is that human beings are both body and soul. And not merely a soul that has a body. I've heard that. That's kind of a popular notion too. I am a soul that has a body. As if the body is not intrinsically connected to my soul. We are embodied souls. That is, that is the kind of beings that God has made us to be. We were created as, as such a union of body and soul. And in the new creation, we will enjoy perfect wholeness as body-soul creatures forever. And there won't anymore be any competition between soul and body. Sometimes that goes on in a fallen world and in, with fallen bodies and minds and souls. Sometimes things don't work right. Sometimes we're not mentally well. Sometimes we're not in control of our emotions and our thoughts. Sometimes our bodies fail. It won't always be like that. There's a day coming when soul and body will work together flawlessly and be kept blameless, he says, at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Paul's point is simply this. May every part of you, Every aspect of your personhood be kept blameless. What does that mean? Holy, sanctified when Jesus returns to 
to welcome you home. And your hope for this Christian is not in your ability to remain faithful, but in the certainty that he is faithful. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. Faithfulness is his nature. He is steady. He is unchanging. He is a promise maker and a keeper of promises. He will supply the strength and courage to keep you in the faith. Reminded of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2. After speaking of the humility of Christ, how he lowered himself for our sake to the point of death and death on a cross, and then was exalted, given the name above every name, he says in in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds frightening. Work out, not work for your own salvation, work it out. Right? Work out, let your salvation be, be worked outward in your life with fear and trembling. For, why? How? It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The desires for sanctification and holiness are given to us by God. And the ability to carry out those things is given to us by God. Who is sanctifying us? Us by our own efforts? No. God is sanctifying us. He is faithful. And how does he conclude verse 24? He will surely do it. This is the hope of the Christian. This is the hope of a sinner who draws near to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. We're saying, I don't have what it takes to be acceptable in God's holy sight. I am stained to the core. I am weakened and afflicted with sin. My desires are all broken and distorted and sometimes I even crave what God forbids. I can't do this. I don't have what it takes. So Christ, by his life and his death in our place and his resurrection to defeat death, gives us what we can't otherwise attain. That's the gospel. Everything God demands of us He has supplied for us by his grace. Friend, trust in Jesus Christ. Look to him in simple faith and he will sanctify you completely. Dr. King said, he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. Of course, he's using the metaphor of the promised land of the Old Testament and the people of Israel, to speak of the the day when this vision of of racial unity and harmony and peace might come to fruition. And he died the day after he delivered this I've been to the mountaintop speech, before his vision of racial harmony in America would be realized. Now the landscape of race relations in America today reveals both that much ground has been gained, much good has been accomplished, but also that the promised land of harmony and peace isn't here yet. Right? There's, there's still work to be done in order for this vision that Dr. King had to be uh, fulfilled and realized. And in an analogous way, the same is true of the sanctification of the church, that the promised future of a redeemed people living in a restored creation with their faithful king and creator. 
The promised land isn't here yet. There's work left to be done. Sins left to be dethroned. Holiness yet to be cultivated. But so long as we commit ourselves to pursuing sanctification among his people in a local church, we have the confident assurance that our faithful God will journey with us along the way, empowering us by his grace to resist the devil and increasingly to reflect the beauty of our king in this broken world until the day when we stand in his presence, having been sanctified completely, having been made and kept blameless by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because he is a promise-making, promise-keeping God, we can say with confidence, he will surely do it. Let's pray.